Well, according to um, a book, The Day America Told the Truth, uh, there was a poll taken, and um, the poll was, was a question, and it was, what would you do for $10 million? What would you do for $10 million? Well, some of the answers were kind of surprising, maybe not all of them. Uh, 25% polled would abandon their families for $10 million. Uh, 16% would give up their American citizenship. <clears throat> uh, 7% um, would put their children up for adoption. Now, what struck me as the most profound answer was that 25% would abandon their church. I thought for 10 million bucks, wow, that's pretty good. I'm glad I went like 100 bucks. Don't think about it. The principle, though, is simple. That if you value something greatly, that you will endure great costs to gain it. That, that, that if you really love something, that you will endure all kinds of effort for it. And we see this in our lives, that if our children, if the health of our children are threatened, that we would be willing to go straight into harm's way for the benefit of those kids. Because the value, the worth of that child is of greater value to me than the pain or the suffering that I may endure. And I would do it even gladly because the worth is so great. Well, what Jesus is teaching us here in this parable is that the infinite worth of God's kingdom, to be, to be in God's kingdom, to be with God is of such value that any costs, any struggle to obtain it would be seen as joyful, easy, glad to do it. Now, you know where we've been in Matthew in this gospel so far. Matthew's intention is very simple. Matthew wants every single reader to know that Christ is the king of a great kingdom. And he's gone, he's gone to, to great lengths to teach this. In the first four chapters, he has made clear the identity of Jesus as king. Right in chapter 1, he's the son of Abraham, which all the Old Testament promises flow into Christ. He's the son of God. He had no earthly father. The spirit brought him forth. <clears throat> chapter 2, his kingship is, is seen clearly because the magi from the east, the Gentiles, came to worship him. And another king, Herod, was, of course, threatened by him, and so he seeks to oppose him. In chapter 3, the baptism, God says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. God identifies Jesus as his Son, the King. Chapter 4, Satan tempts him. He tempts the second Adam, just like in Genesis 3, tempted the first Adam. first Adam fell, the second Adam didn't fall. And then Jesus, with this identity made clear, he begins to preach the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God has come. Now remember what Jesus did immediately after he started preaching. He gave the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. He, as the king, is now giving a new law. That's what kings do. Kings establish law. He brings a new law. He said, you've heard it said, I say to you. So Jesus is exercising his right as king to establish law. But then in chapters 8 and 9, he does those series of 10 miracles. He cleanses the leper, he heals the sick, he cleanses the demonized, he raises the dead. As king from heaven, he has a divine authority, and he exercises it. Everybody could see it. It was clear. 
And this is where the gospel then takes a move. Because chapters 10, 11, and 12, he begins to face all this opposition. And you, you, the reader, should be thinking, why? I mean, why would they face opposition? He's the king with the kingdom. He's bringing teaching. He's showing authority and power. He's rolling back wickedness, as any good king would do. And they oppose him. Well, the disciples, of course, are questioning and saying, well, what kind of kingdom are you bringing? Well, chapter 13 answers that question. He goes through all these parables about the nature of the kingdom. And so the first parable is the parable of the soils, right? People aren't all going to receive them. Christ is going to come. He's going to proclaim his kingship, and people are going to reject him. You saw that with the hard soils versus the fertile soil. But not only that, this kingdom that's going to come, it's not going to smash all competing kingdoms right away. It's going to grow and it's going to thrive in an environment of opposition. And so that's what you have. The parable of the the enemy sowing weeds among the wheat. And so you have this environment of opposition that the kingdom will grow. But there's no doubt it will grow because we have the parable of the the mustard seed and the leaven. It's going to be explosive in its growth. And all the birds are going to come and nest in its branches, or all the nations are going to come, and they're ultimately going to worship God. But now you come to our passage, and you have this idea that it has an unsurpassed value. This treasure in this field, this, this merchant seeking fine pearls. And, and it's so valuable that when you, and I should say first, if you, or when you come to understand it, then any cost associated with following Christ for this kingdom is going to seem paltry compared to what he has offered you in the kingdom. So let's turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13 with that kind of background. Matthew chapter 13, we'll look at verses 44 to 46. Very short, but as you're going to see, it's pregnant with thought. kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So just three things I want you to understand that Jesus is teaching us about this kingdom. Number one, the value is hidden. It is a hidden value related to this kingdom. Uh, Number two, you're going to see that when the value is seen, it's unsurpassed, it's priceless, it's unparalleled. There is no competing kingdom. And then thirdly, that when you see the immense value, that you will joyfully shed everything that might hinder you from gaining this kingdom. So the first thing, that it's a hidden kingdom. I think you see first, when I say it's hidden, by the way, I'm not saying it's not here. The kingdom is a present reality. You see Jesus say the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of heaven is, it's not will be. Jesus came and preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. So with the coming of the Messiah in the flesh, he established, he began God's kingdom. But because it's been initiated doesn't mean it's obvious. In other words, the kingdom isn't discerned or discovered as we discover other things. And you see it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. If you're going to hide treasure in the field, you hide it in a way it's not discernible. It's not discoverable. You don't want it kind of a lump of dirt in the field. You want to make sure it's hidden that nobody sees it. I mean, this farmer that was plowing the field that ultimately discovered it, how many times had he gone back and forth across the field? 
I don't know. He hadn't seen it before. It was the first time that he saw it when he ran into it. But he hadn't seen it before. Same thing with the merchant in a way. Even though the merchant was searching for fine pearls, who knows how long he searched for it? And, and how many boxes and bins of pearls? How many back corners of bazaars that he went to to finally find the pearl? It's almost as if he discovered it. Now, it's, it's not that Jesus' ministry was hidden. His ministry was public. He taught publicly. He exercised his power, miracles publicly. It was done very public, very out front, wasn't secretive. wasn't like those esoteric religions kind of done with secret rituals and secret groups. It was very public. But they didn't see the value of the kingdom. They saw the ministry, they heard the teaching, and they saw the miracles. And incidentally, nobody ever denied the miracles happened. They just didn't see the value of Jesus as a Messiah. Why? Because it's a hidden kingdom. Do you realize that it's God's grace that reveals it to you? Didn't Jesus say this in Matthew 13, 10 at the beginning of the chapter? He said to the disciples, To you it's been made known the secrets of the kingdom. To them it has not. You have to deal with that. Or in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus prays. He says, I thank you, my Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, but you've revealed them to children. In other words, the kingdom of God, its beautiful value, has to be revealed to us by God. He has to open our eyes to see its value. He has to make us aware of this great value. Well, look at who he makes it aware to. Look at how God chooses to reveal the kingdom. You have this farmer. We assume he's a farmer. He's, maybe he was walking across the field. Most likely he was plowing the field. He didn't own the field. He wasn't a rich man. He probably worked. He got paid. He ate, his, he ate his day's wages, and he worked the next day. Probably day-to-day farmer, poor, uneducated, unsophisticated, probably that part of society that we don't really look at. You know, they function in our society. They help us in our society. But we don't really look at them. They're not really anybody that you're going to go to for any sort of wisdom or counsel or strength. It's kind of the lower rung, if you will. We see Jesus ministering to this section of life all the time with prostitutes and women, tax collectors, children. I, I love the, the, the unfathomable grace of God that he reaches down to those that we might consider lowest, and he lets them find the treasure. He reveals the treasure to them. But, you know, it's not just the poor and the broken that hear the gospel. It's a merchant. Merchant's the other man. Merchant would have been a smart man. He would have been a businessman. He would have been able to transact business. He would have been wise to discern what makes a good pearl good. He would have been a traveler. He would have, he would have understood high finance. His clientele would have been the rich and famous, only those who could afford pearls. And so here... Jesus shows that the kingdom of God is even for them. The rich, the highbrow, the blue bloods, they need the kingdom, just like the lowbrow, those on the lower rung of society. You see this beautiful picture that God has come to reveal this, this unlimited kingdom to both the broken and those that esteem themselves so highly. Isn't that gracious of God? Isn't that gracious that you may put yourself in one of those two camps, but he goes after both. Not only does he go after various people and reveal the hidden value of the kingdom, but look at how he does it. The farmer, 
that guy's just plowing the field. He's not looking for help. He's not looking for God. He's just doing his chores. Maybe he had plowed that field a hundred times. And just this time, the blade, as it's cutting through the field, hits the box. And he hears something different. And he opens the treasure. And he sees its value. He wasn't even looking for it. He just happened to find it. Or you could say it found him. Or you look at the merchant. The merchant is seeking. He is searching. He is diligent to try to find a pearl of high value. You know, you kind of see these two types of people. There's the one person who comes to hear the gospel and they believe they weren't convicted of their sin. They weren't looking for God. They weren't feeling estranged from God and pressured under their sin. But they just hear the gospel and their eyes are open to its value. This is totally me. I remember when Carol and I went to this Bible study, I went kicking and screaming. I don't want to go to a Bible study. We had a house. We had a CPA firm. We had money. We had everything. I, I didn't feel estranged from God. I didn't feel like I was really a sinner. And I heard the gospel. And all of a sudden, it's like it all made sense. God is holy. I am sinful. I need to be reconciled to God. I hadn't gone there that day worried about those things. But I became aware of it when he opened my eyes to it. Isn't that gracious of God? But then you have the merchant. He's seeking the pearls. There are so many people, perhaps some of you even here, you're coming to church, you're trying to figure out life, you're searching for God, you're not sure. You're trying to do these things in your life so that maybe at the end God will find favor with you. You're striving and you're striving and you're striving. You're trying to do good things. You're trying to avoid bad things so at the end it's going to go okay with you. And all of a sudden you hear the gospel of grace. That is that God has for his own glory given us his son to die for our sins, that through faith in Christ we might be saved. And your ears are attuned to it now, and you realize the work of Christ is what saves. Not all those things you've been trying to do. And all of a sudden, you realize all of your works have now been worthless in comparison to the work of the Son. That's the grace of God. So he saves different peoples. He saves different ways. It's good to know that. So many times I think we're threatened if people's testimony doesn't somehow sound like ours. Or if we don't, you didn't pray a prayer when you were 14, and somehow your conversion is different than mine. Or it's some, you, know, you have the Ethiopian eunuch, the man studying scriptures in Isaiah, seeking God, and of course God brings Philip to teach him the gospel, and he believes. You have Paul, Paul's not searching, he's searching Christians to kill him, and yet God saves him as well. God saves through the gospel in various ways, in various measures. Now, if you've discovered the gospel, <clears throat> if you trust in the gospel, how did you discover it? Now, when I say trusting in the gospel or the kingdom, here's how the kingdom looks. You know you're part of the kingdom uh, by the joyful submission you have to live under God's reign that you want to live under God's reign. You're happy to be part of his kingdom. You want to serve him. That you, you, you do extend forgiveness. You do confess sin. You do want to walk in holiness. You do want to be obedient out of the joy in your heart. Remember the Pharisees, <clears throat> excuse me, the Pharisees asked Jesus, so when is the kingdom coming in Luke 17, 21? And Jesus says, it's not going to come with signs as if you could say, oh, there it is or here it is. Jesus says, the kingdom of God will come in the midst of you. In other words, it's the regenerated soul. We know that we're part of God's kingdom when we treasure Christ 
when we love his kingdom, when we're gladly submitting our lives to him, whether it's in finance or life or parenting, that we submit ourselves to God. So if you're a Christian and you see the marks of the kingdom in you, how did you come to discover it? It wasn't by your ingenuity. Do you see the grace of God in your life? Doesn't it bring a measure of humility to you? I mean, remember the Christian is the most humble person. The Christian doesn't walk in any sort of pride or arrogance because it's been given to us. The kingdom's been revealed to us. We didn't find it through this deep inquiry. God has revealed himself to us by his own grace. And if you're gladly submitting to the kingdom, please join with me in just humbling ourselves and saying, God, I don't know why. You know, it's so funny. We talk about what are we going to say to God the first time we see him? You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm going to ask him about the nature of election. Or I'm going to ask him why does suffering exist and all this sort of stuff. I think my question is going to be, why? Why did you even open my eyes to it? I, I don't even need the theological way. Why did you do it? I mean, I'm just humbled in the fact that I didn't care. And then all of a sudden I started caring. And that to me is the grace of the gospel. It's a gift. I hope you find it to be the same way. If you're here today... And you haven't really thought about the kingdom being of value and your heart is being stirred over the nature of God sending Christ to establish a kingdom to draw people into it to save them. If your heart's being stirred, then turn by faith and repent of your sins. What I mean by that is confess to God that you have not even given him a shred of thought or you've tried to impress him just by your own deeds and ask for forgiveness and begin to Plead with God that you might treasure Christ and all that he is. So it's a hidden treasure. It's a hidden value. But that's not to say that it's not priceless. Look at the metaphors he uses. A treasure in a field or a pearl. Now remember, a treasure in the field, this was not a common occurrence that you would find a treasure. But it was a common occurrence that you would bury treasure. Why? Well, they didn't have banks as we had. They did have some banks, but they charged high interest for protecting your money. But very few people used them. You tended to want to keep, because of all the ongoing wars in the Middle East, it's not just now, it was then, you would want to keep your wealth with you or near you. So if you had to quickly leave, you could take it with you. So you didn't want to give it to the care of another. And so they would often bury it. So this farmer here is plowing the field, and he must have hit something or seen something. There must have been something that was different that he looked down and he saw this treasure. And he opened it up, and there would be maybe perhaps gold or gems or silver, or maybe costly ointments. But here's the deal. When he saw it, he knew it was, had a value beyond his ability to calculate. And so that's when he went and in his joy sold everything he had. He said, I want this treasure. And he bought the field to get the treasure. So excited, so priceless. Or the merchant seeking fine pearls. You know, pearls were actually of greater value than gold. Pearls could only be gained at the time um, in the Persian Gulf or even on the coast of India. And, and pearls were very unique it, because it was a very deadly work. To get the pearls, the swimmers would have to kind of put weights on their bodies to sink fast because, you know, time is of the essence. There was no oxygen, obviously. And so they had to sink fast to try to gather up as many oysters as they could to bring them up to the boat. And many people died doing it. In fact, Cleopatra had a pearl that was valued at 20 million denarii. 
In other words, one denarii for one day's labor. So you would have to work 20 million days to afford this one pearl that she had. So they were unique. They were priceless. And this merchant, I don't know, he looked at the pearl maybe, he just noticed it, it was among other pearls, and he saw just the perfection of it, and he knew it was valueless, such that he sold everything he had. Everything. That would have been his whole inventory of pearls, because he was a merchant, so he was a businessman. He had many pearls to sell. All that he had acquired, all the wealth that he had built up over the years, he sold it all for one little pearl. It was so priceless. And Jesus is saying, this is the kingdom of God. To be part of God's kingdom. This is how valueless, this is how unsurpassed value this kingdom is. Now, now obviously the parable is only three lines. So it doesn't articulate what it is. We, we, we bring to this word the kingdom of heaven. How is it valuable? Well, let me just enumerate a few things for you. And, and there are many more that I could. When you think about the kingdom of God, what does it mean to be in Christ, in his kingdom? Well, it means reconciliation with God. It means that that Jesus Christ has borne your sin, your shame, your guilt, and folks, he's borne the wrath of the Father upon himself that you can be forgiven to be adopted by God. Now just think about that for a moment. You've heard me say that repeatedly. And, and this familiarity breeds a degree of contempt. It's not as significant to you. You were estranged from God, or perhaps if you're not, a, you are estranged from God, and Christ has come to bridge the gap. And you see the table that we're going to celebrate is a picture of what he endured to bridge the gap. But he didn't just reconcile you. In Christ, you have access now to God. When I prayed for you this morning and we prayed for you, we're not, a, we're not just kind of applying you know, to some distant deity for help. We're appealing to a father. So Jesus has made access possible that you can now find God as father as opposed to some judge or just a distant, powerful God. You can appeal to him as father. Yeah, I often long to ask you, how would you describe the fatherhood of God in your life? Because that would give me a window into understanding how you see God. How do you see him as a father? But not just that. You're forgiven. In Christ, you're forgiven. This is another value of the kingdom. Folks, how long will you carry your sins with you? All the sins that you've committed, the things that you have done, the things that you haven't done, the things that have brought you great shame, the things that have brought you deep regret. For the Christian, those are forgiven. Jesus has borne them. He's borne the wrath associated with them. They've been removed from us. We don't have to carry them anymore. This is why the joy is laden with the kingdom. We're satisfied that he's taken them all. That he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us, to wash us. You know, the, the stain of sin often feels just like that. It's like a stain that you want removed. You know, when people sin in large measure, they want to get away from it as far as they can, as fast as they can. He's removed it all from us. But, but the, the value of the kingdom of sin is the giving of the Spirit. In Christ, we have the Spirit. The Spirit now dwells within the Christian And the Spirit brings conviction of sin. He leads us to righteousness. He gives us gifts that we can use for his kingdom. He confirms with our spirit that we're children of God. This is a gift to us. This is a value of the kingdom. 
or just one more. In Christ, we have eternal life. Think about it. When I say to you eternal life, I say you bear no eternal threat. You bear none. Cancer, terrorism, financial downturns, none of those, none of those can eternally threaten you. Do you realize that? That's why Paul, can you imagine Paul? He's saying, I'm convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor anything else in all creation, neither height nor depth, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You have the assurance, being in the kingdom of God, you have the assurance of God's unbridled, unmerited, unchanging love for you because of Christ. These are some of the values. For the Christian here, your Christianity is really revealed by how you treasure this. Do you weigh and consider the kingdom of God as valuable? I mean, do you marvel? Do you just like a lozenger? Do you just chew on this idea? Am I really forgiven? And what would that mean for tomorrow? Or do I, I have eternal life? So next set of bad news that comes in, and you confront it with, I will live forever with God. How does that affect you? Do you treasure? Do you value? The world doesn't, I, and perhaps some of you don't. I know the world doesn't. I mean, can you imagine these two guys? They had to be the laughing stock of their community. You're selling everything you have to get a little piece of ground over there on the hill? Really? Or the merchant? You're going to get rid of all your pearls, all the work you've done, all the labor you've invested? You're going to get rid of all that stuff for one little pearl? We have the proverb, only a fool puts his, all of his eggs in one basket. Can't believe you're going to put everything into this kingdom. You know, it's ridiculed. That's why Jesus is ridiculed and rejected and, and renounced. I mean, what's the, I mean, you're kidding. Diversify. Any investment counselor will tell you, diversify. Make sure you're spread wide. Don't, don't put your hope just in this one. Where, where do you land on that? You know, we as, we as, People of the world just have trouble valuing things. We do. We, 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 we get it inverted. I shared this with you about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher. Not, probably not the strongest, you know, most biblical Christian in the world, but a, but a good philosopher. And, and he was trying to bring this to bear, this understanding that we don't value things well. And so he told a parable of how Two thieves broke into a department store, and they didn't steal anything. What they did was they just switched price tags. So they took the price tags on the most expensive, genuine article in terms of all the diamonds, and they put it on the junk jewelry. And they took all the price tags from the junk jewelry, and they put it on the expensive jewelry. And then they watched as, as through the week, people would come and pay exorbitant prices for junk jewelry. And, and, and the few would spend a little bit of money on the priceless jewelry. And that's what we do. It's God's version of valuation is counterintuitive to the way we think. We value things of temporal nature. We value our earthly kingdoms. We value things that, as Adam prayed, they're grass, they're flowers of the field. Perhaps you do. When you weigh right now, how valuable do you find this kingdom to be? When I tell you you've been reconciled to God, does your, heart, does your heart move at all with graciousness and thankfulness? Are you, are you, do you feel a relief that your sins are forgiven? 
You know, many of us, we're concerned how our kids are growing up or how our health is holding up or how our securities are keeping up. And what value do you give to the kingdom of God? I'm not asking you to do anything for it. I'm just asking for you to value it. And, and if, if I were to ask you, what do you think most about? What do you worry most about? What do you get most excited about? What would those things be? Is the kingdom a part of that at all? How do you value it? it it's, it's clear. It's clearly important. Because when you look at the third part of this, right? The kingdom, it's a hidden treasure. It's a hidden value. But it's a priceless value. But look at the third part. The fact that are you willing to give everything for it? Because if you don't value it, you won't give anything for it. Now, think about the farmer and the merchant. When they discover the value, they sell everything they have, by the way, with joy, to purchase the field. Now, let me just clear up a couple confusing points here. Sometimes people think of this as you can buy the kingdom. You obviously can't buy the kingdom. It's hidden. It has to be revealed to you. Other people want to get all knotted up over the ethical behavior of the man who would buy a field knowing there's treasure and not telling the owner of the field. And, and this man must have been walking in deceit because he kind of did an underhanded deal. Well, don't think that even applies. Why? A, if the owner of the field, if it was his treasure, he wouldn't have sold the field. If the guy was really deceitful, he would have just taken the treasure, not even bought the field. And, and rabbinical law, by the way, the law of the rabbi said if you find goods or treasure or fruit, that it is for the finder to keep it. What the point of it is, though, really, is the idea that when you see something of immense value, the costs associated with acquiring it are nothing. In other words, there's not a sacrifice to be borne by the farmer or by the merchant because you're getting more than you're giving. Do you understand that? To get this kingdom, whatever the cost is, it's nothing in comparison to it. We see this kind of in Paul's life, I think. The Apostle Paul, he was an up-and-coming uh, rabbi in the school of rabbis, respected, well thought, knew the, the upper echelon of the Sanhedrin. They had given him the marching orders to go get the Christians. And here's what he said. He said this, he said, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. But listen to what he says. He says, for whose sake I have lost all things. He did. I'm sure that he lost any standing he had among the society of rabbis. I'm sure he lost any investments, any goods or possessions that he had, he lost. He probably lost his family who thought he went off the deep end in pursuing Christ by faith. He probably lost every single thing. And he now looks at the surpassing value of Christ. He says they're just rubbish anyways. Compared with Christ, they're rubbish. It's like a candle may really be bright in a very dark room. You bring it out into the middle of a noonday sun, you don't even see the candle. You know, all of a sudden when you see the shining strength of the sun, the glory of Christ and all that we have in him, what are the kingdoms that we have? How valuable are they really? 
The way we obtain the kingdom is by treasuring the king and by treasuring all that the king has done. The way that we obtain the kingdom is to celebrate them. But what does that mean? Well, before you quickly move in your minds to think, well, that's a metaphor. We really don't have to sell everything. We don't have to give up everything to have Christ. Well, let's not be so quick. I mean, Jesus did say foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, so Jesus gave up everything. We've already seen how Paul gave up everything. We've already seen, we will see soon, that young, rich ruler come up to Jesus and say, how can I inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say to him? Go and sell everything you have and come follow me. So let's not be too quick to move from the literal to the metaphor here. I know when, when Carol and I were looking at going overseas, and, and we were praying, Lord, should we go overseas? We had a ministry, we had a home, we had two children, and, and, and we were asking God for grace. I remember one day I was about to lead a Bible study in the Naval Academy. Some of you know this, but I was, remember just reading the Scriptures. I wasn't searching the Scriptures per se, but I, I just opened. I was waiting 15 minutes before I began to teach, and so I read it. My eyes fell on Matthew 19:29. And he says, and everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Well, that was pretty clear. But what made it more clear was the same day or the day before, Carol had been searching the scriptures and she was praying, God, do we, do we go? Do we go as you're calling us to go? And her eyes fall on this verse. And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters, father, mother, children, fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit the same verse. And so he called us, and we did it. And by the way, it just seemed right. There wasn't even an effort to be made because God was leading, God was calling. And that may be some of you. Some of you may be even entertaining in the far back parts of your mind. Is God calling me to something of greater measure? Is he calling me to serve in a capacity where I leave my, my family and friends? Go. If he's calling you to do it, his kingdom is worth it. We can testify to the hundred times as much. Go. I mean, he may be calling you to that endeavor. But he might not. But how do we understand this if it isn't just in the literal sense? Well, I think we understand it this way. To give up everything means to renounce possession of everything, that you're willing to give it up, that you're willing to lose all things in following Christ, that he is so worthy that you're willing to renounce all things. It may mean that God's Spirit's prompting you to share the gospel with your boss. You know you'll lose your reputation as a, as a guy that fits in if you do that, or as a woman that really is a big part of the organization, you, and that's going to be threatened by you. Are you willing to renounce it by speaking to the things of God? I mean, or, or the company is wanting to do something and it's in, an, it's in an area that you consider unethical. Are you willing to lose the possibility of advancement in your company because Christ is worth it? And his kingdom is more valuable than what you hope to gain in your earthly kingdom. Or perhaps it's sharing Christ or even walking out uh, uh, just the gospel with your own family and, and run the risk of they think you've lost your mind. 
because you want to talk to them about the beauty of Christ at Christmas. Something even simple as that. You've already read the parable that you know people won't receive them. You already read the parable that it's going to be in an environment of conflict. But are we willing to do that? Is our commitment strong to do that? Now, this is clearly a word for the Christian here, that if you have found and you've been listening to me and you're thinking in your mind, I don't think about the kingdom. I mean, I don't consider these things in any degree. Well, then repent. What I mean by repent is own your sin. Don't blame it on all, well, I've got to secure a future. Well, we live in very uncertain times. We've always lived in uncertain times. Listen, security is an absolute illusion. Just let's get that straight right now. Security is an illusion. It really is. You can get hit by a bus walking out of the church. It's an illusion. And so maybe you have given greater credence and you've put more time into all of your little kingdoms. Just repent and ask God to open your eyes to the beauty and the pricelessness of his kingdom. If you're not a Christian here, I want you to think about the nature of the, the, the shakable nature of your kingdom. The precarious nature. I'm not a doom and gloom, the sky's falling. That's not my style at all. But just the nature of life. If you've had any years under your belt, you know the shakable nature. Whereas the kingdom of God is, as we read in Hebrews, it's unshakable. You cannot shake God's kingdom. It's so firm and so fixed. And I would ask you to consider what kingdoms you're building. It's Jesus who said this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it gain? At the end of your life, what are those things to you? What become, what matter, I asked a friend this week, you know, if you were to stand before God, what are the first three regrets that come into your mind over not having done? Where has your value been misplaced? So the kingdom of God, is, it, it, it's a beautiful thing in that it's a hidden treasure, it's a priceless treasure, and it's treasure worth all of your effort. And this is the kicker about this. It's all out of joy. It's the joy over the kingdom that drives us. I don't want to ever lead a church in some due-to-bound obedience. I don't, I don't want that. We're people of joy because of what we have. You know, I think about Jesus. It says, who the joy set before him endured the cross. So when he saw the cross and all the pain that that would bring, he found joy in it. Because he knew on the other side, it was redeeming a people for the Father. And it was a bringing together all things. And I know that many of us struggle with this idea of joy in our Christian life. And I wonder if it isn't because we have misplaced values. You know, I'm reading a book by Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a Presbyterian minister back in the 20th century. He died in 19, I think, 82 or 84. But uh, he was a man that in the 40s came to... He, he was an honest man, and he found in his life a lack of joy and satisfaction in the Christian faith. And he was in the, in the denomination, the Presbyterian denomination, and he saw a lack of joy, and he saw the power plays and the denominational struggles and the whole thing. And it was kind of a shaking of his faith. He, he said, I began to wonder, my reality of experiencing Christ is not like the reality of these scriptures. And that brought him into a major point of tension in his life. So my faith, I'm walking out the faith, I'm seeing the power struggles in the church, and I don't have the joy I want to have. And, and, and this may be really speaking to a lot of you, 
regarding your own experience in the faith. It's just void of joy and satisfaction and contentment. And he sees in the scripture and people are, you know, it's like in Hebrews, they're gladly giving up their possessions because of the better possessions they have in heaven. So someone comes and wants to take everything out of your house because you're a Christian, and you're saying, let me hold the door for you. You know, sure, I'm, I'm, I got so much stuff coming, you can grab this stuff, it's no problem at all. I mean, we don't see that. And so that point of tension drove him back to the scriptures. And, and it drove him back, he said, to his agnosticism. Back when he really didn't know what he believed, he went all the way back, and he began to pour over the scriptures, and he realized this that it is in the value it is in the value of the glory of Christ understanding Christ and all that he has done for us in salvation that that is the key to finding the joy and satisfaction it's exactly what the passage is telling us that when you begin to treasure Christ in his kingdom that there is a joy that there is a satisfaction that many of us aren't feeling right now in this christian life please be honest with yourself if you don't, if you're a Christian here and you don't have the joy and the satisfaction that comes from knowing this kingdom and all the things I enumerated to you, go back, consider who Jesus is. You have, to, you have to almost relearn the value of his kingdom. And if you're not a Christian here, then I would ask you to consider the, the unshakable nature of his kingdom versus all of the kingdoms, the tottering kingdoms that you're leaning on. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in your word. You've opened your word to us. You've revealed yourself uh, to us in Christ. You've brought him forth. You've given him a body. You've brought him born under the law, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law and to, and to give us full rights as sons and daughters, brought into a kingdom whereby we have reconciliation and access and we have forgiveness and we have the power of the Spirit dwelling within us, and we have eternal life that will be ours forever. Father, would you, uh, would you bring these things to such clarity, the value, the preciousness, the uniqueness, the unparalleled value, would you bring that to our minds that we enjoy would be willing to renounce all things, that there would be nothing that would hinder us from pursuing and gaining your kingdom both for the non-Christian, Father, but also for, for the Christian, that they would gain more of the joy that is just part and parcel of your kingdom. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.